0: I'm Inez Stuttman.
1: I'm Josh Hammer.
0: I'm Emily Jashinski. And
1: I'm Ben Weingarten.
0: And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, So we have a a full show for you today, as as we often do. our topics today, Ben is going to talk about Confucius Institutes and whether um, any of the measures taken against them in college universities are actually working, whether they're actually disappearing. Josh is going to be talking about President Biden's um, Middle East trip and and whether or not that was successful. Um, I'm going to be talking about how UPenn has named Leah Thomas Female Athlete of the Year, and the NCAA is looking at doing the same thing. Um, And Emily is going to talk about how Starbucks is blaming woke officials for store closures in dangerous cities. Um, So Ben, do you want to kick us off here with the Confucius Institute topic?
2: Sure. And uh, I'm sure many of our listeners and viewers are familiar with Confucius Institutes, but essentially these were supposedly Chinese-U.S. institution cultural exchange centers that started to crop up primarily in colleges and universities, starting in around 2005. And moving fast forwarding about a decade, the National Association of Scholars put together an unbelievable report investigating the activities of these purported Chinese-US cultural exchange centers. And what they found was that at many Confucius Institutes, uh, there was essentially Chinese Communist Party regime propaganda that was being put forth within these centers. Um, so while there might be you know, sort of traditional um, you know, art and other common cultural practices from China that were being taught to US students, sometimes by the way, for a course credit, to the extent anyone wanted to talk about Tiananmen Square or Tibet or Xinjiang, basically there would be radio silence. We also understood based upon NASA's findings that those participating in the programs oftentimes were afraid to broach these subjects and that potentially there were a whole raft of other compromising elements to these centers in no small part because they were overseen funded staffed by had textbooks that were all approved by the hanban which is an entity within china's ministry of education it's a propaganda ministry of course so you had u.s institutions taking money from a Chinese Communist Party propaganda entity, which was controlling the content of these courses, uh, obviously had substantial leverage with the dollars that were involved, and this is not even to mention, of course, the potential espionage aspects of this—either informing on or spying on those Chinese nationals studying in America, or, of course, you know, there's the potential for uh, trying to convert or create assets of Americans as well, and so. NASA's report, the National Association of Scholars' report, which came out in 2017, tipped off, in my view, a huge press among law enforcement, members of Congress as well, to start digging into China's infiltration more broadly of America's education system and exploitation of our academic freedom and using it to put forth potentially the priorities of the regime in ways that threaten national security or could threaten national security. And so this became highly publicized Chinese China's Confucius institutes. I think it became well understood that these could be Trojan centers for influence, infiltration, penetration, espionage. And in my view, this really illustrated well the the modus operandi for the Chinese Communist Party to exploit our institutions. And so ultimately, with a massive uproar, law enforcement briefing all of these educational institutions, it appeared that there was a massive shuttering of these centers. And also, The NDAA uh, military bill, defense bill, rather, also had provisions put in place which would essentially cease funding, military funding in particular, DOD funding, to those institutions that continued to house Confucius Institutes. So all of these measures led to what appeared to be a whole raft of closures. And at their peak, there were 118 Confucius Institutes on college campuses, and 104 of them either closed or were in the process of closing. But as NASA's disclosed in a new report that came out last month, they could not cite one center that actually fully closed in the sense of no more Chinese-U.S. cross-cultural exchange centers, no more funding from China, no more direction from communist entities. In fact, and this is kind of the money quote from the whole report, in no cases are we sufficiently confident to classify any university as having fully closed its Confucius Institutes. Of the four case studies that they ran, there was evidence of continued collaboration with the Chinese government in all of them. Overall, we find the Chinese government has carefully courted American colleges and universities, seeking to persuade them to keep their Confucius Institutes or failing that, to reopen similar programs under other names. American colleges and universities, too, appear eager to replace their Confucius Institutes with other forms of engagement with China, frequently in ways that mimic the major problems with these institutes. So this report demonstrates the shape shifting way in which China has operated here. Also, from my perspective, demoralizingly shows that most of these universities did not shutter these centers and then resurrect them uh, out of fears over Communist Party's malign influence here, uh, but rather to kind of get in line with the law. Uh, and then to open up new centers was the primary rationale they used. So. I think this is an indictment of our college campuses, but also I think it demonstrates the fact that only with serious legislative effort will our civil society institutions ultimately purge themselves of Chinese Communist Party influence. And I'm curious for the group, what do you think about kind of the the questions that arise here about so-called academic freedom, of course, from institutions that don't really care for academic freedom, but the exploitation by malign powers of these institutions and what it represents more broadly in terms of American society's effort to grapple with the comprehensive CCP threat?
0: Well, first of all, this, this is not just in universities. It's really important to realize there is a similar effort happening in K-12, um, where there is no academic freedom. So that, that's clearly not not the objection. Um, it. I also think it's a really good example of, of the shape of sort of the U.S. relationship with China uh, in, in two important respects. First is that of course, um, at least in the abstract sense, I'm, I'm reluctant to call universities part of our free society. Um, but, but at least in the abstract sense, right? It's uh, it's, it's taking advantage of of the um, structures that allow for a free society uh, in in a way that most other countries would not even think about allow- allowing a hostile foreign power to do. Um, and and the second thing of course is the split the split between our elites and the rest of Americans, right? Um, If there has been one thing that Americans have kind of come together on uh, over over the last, let's say, five, six years, it has been understanding that China is our enemy. Um, And yet our elites are still, whether that's in the universities or in, in large corporations, are still kind of selling the family jewels. They're pretending that China is a normal market actor. So these kinds of programs exist, these exchange, cultural exchange programs, all this stuff, exists for you know it exists for spain it exists for france it exists for australia right um but there's this reluctance to uh, make a distinction particularly when there's plenty of money involved to make a distinction between a country that is hostile to us and teaching their propaganda to u.s students Um, the other just one really brief point i want to make oftentimes the consulate is in communication with a lot of these groups so not just the confucius institutes but um the chinese student union for example Um, and again this is one of those things where you know, this is America, we're totally fine with, of course, like, Americans of different ethnic background having, for example, cultural groups on campus. Um, but oftentimes, those cultural groups are have direct contact with the consulate. In fact, that's what happened in my university, um, that the consulate was giving orders uh, to um, half foreign exchange students, but also they feel they own like Han Chinese Americans as well. And so they are, um, the consulates are giving orders to American citizens who are oftentimes afraid if they have a special to have family back uh, back in China like so uh, th- th- this is a real they, they are exerting influence um, not just in universities but in k-12 and and in a broader sense and I'm sure Emily might touch on this but in a broader sense within by using their market power whether it's Hollywood or um, you know the NBA or, or, or a bunch of other um, institutions so there's a real split between I think the American people and the elites on this as there are as there is with
3: many things. Yeah, I I was just going to say, I think the extent of China's infiltration of our system of higher education is not totally well understood and Ben's uh, breakdown of this report from 2017 I think is really helpful and then to look back and say I mean this should be bipartisan this is this is not a partisan question this should be a bipartisan effort to shut this stuff down Um, the federal government can do that should do that and um, the the fact that that's not immediately happening despite how obvious and honestly fairly easy it would be um, is really telling and I don't want to give them too much credit at it, because I'm not sure how well this propaganda is working anymore. Um, I do think there's been sort of an awakening. Uh, just really quickly, I think we talked earlier this year about my alma mater, GW, um, where, to Inez's point, students who were in touch with the embassy and the consulate um, protested. the. They, they had included the work of an artist that was sort of uh, anti- CCP uh, Chinese artist who's anti CCP. The Chinese student union freaked out, um, and you know probably had been in touch, in touch with the consulate and the embassy, and it didn't work. Um, you know it, it worked at first, and then people said, "Wait, well, this is America. If we have free speech here." And I think a few years ago, it probably would have worked. Period. Um, so m- maybe their their propaganda is is too weak to survive at this point, and I hope that's the case.
1: So. I'll, I'll be brief here because I basically echo what's been said. I, I guess the only other things I'll add is sometimes in general, I just wonder why the left is so up in arms about Russia, 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 Russia all the time, obviously going back to the 2016 election and the infamous disinformation and the Facebook and Putin and all that. And they just really just don't seem to give a you know what at best about China. At worst, they tend to mold up. The they tend to downplay, obviously, the Wuhan origins of the virus. Then it's also written about this quite extensively for, for me and Newsweek as well. I I really do think it kind of boils down to the fact that Russia is quote unquote white and quote unquote Christian and China is not. I really, pardon me if I'm just being overly cynical, it would not be the first time that I've been accused of being overly cynical. But I think that in many ways really does, does kind of just boil down to that. But another thing that I think would be good fodder for future conversation, kind of going back to kind of like Inez's wheelhouse, is what should we do about the intersection of of Chinese students, really, and Chinese just broader academic educational influence and the American higher education, the American Academy in general. So Amanda Rothschild, if I recall, had a good op-ed for us um, maybe last year or so, sometime in 2021. If I recall, she basically called for a severe limitation, potentially like an outright moratorium on, on, on allowing people from actual China to study in U.S. universities, because one of two things has to happen, either we have to kind of change our visa system to try to like get these people here that's kind of the more libertarian kind of open borders argument like just get the foreign talent here let them work in Silicon Valley H1B visas blah 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 but if we're not going to do that and we're just going to get these people in credential and then ship them back overseas to a hostile regime the chinese like what what is the point here so something has to give and we're not going to answer these questions in this segment but i think it is good good fodder for future con- conversation certainly um but we're out of time on this segment so let's transition i guess we'll we'll stay within the realm of foreign policy here so joe biden uh, has completed his Middle East trip. He uh, he has been in uh, in Israel, uh, in east in Eastern Jerusalem. What the media will tell you is uh, the the so-called West Bank, East Jerusalem, Jay and Samaria. And then, of course, he famously, perhaps the the most kind of headline grabbing part of this trip, of course, was his uh, infamous fist bump with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the reform minded Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. So I'm not I'm certainly not going to join the Washington Post-led chorus of outrage about this fist bump with Mohammed bin Salman. You know, Ben and I have discussed the Jamal Khashoggi affair on this show before, which really kind of amounts to a Qatari information operation trying to warp America, really trying to get uh, uh, the Obama-Biden-centric foreign policy people to realign America's interests away from the Saudis, away from the Egyptians, towards the Iranians. So I'm I'm not going to join that chorus of, of criticism. But it does seem that in many ways, a lot that happened on this trip, as as I see it, really does accentuate a lot of the clear and very obvious failings of this total clown show of, of, of an administration. So Biden basically touched down at Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv, Last week, recording this on Monday, so I think he touched down on Wednesday, if I recall, he he, there's literally video of this so he gets off the plane and he turns to an aide and says what am I doing now. Within minutes, he then goes to a microphone and he's joined by uh, Yair Lapid, who has uh, recently supplanted Naftali Bennett as the acting prime minister before Israel's fifth round of elections in three years happens later this year and next to Yair Lapid he speaks of the quote unquote truth and honor of the Holocaust. You know, I mean, like maybe like 20 years ago, it might have been like, oh, Uncle Joe, like casual sip of the tongue. But, you know, th- there's like a large enough sample size now where this is like a pretty heavy, you know, I another indication of this man is just like clearly like not right on the head. So later that trip, um, you know, I, after he, you know, he met with Ayur Lepid, he met with uh, Isaac Herzog, the president. So then he goes to Eastern Jerusalem. They take off the Israeli flag from the presidential motorcade just to travel like the two to three miles, whatever it is, from Western Jerusalem to Eastern Jerusalem, where, of course, he meets with Holocaust denialist Mahmoud Abbas, you know, who's the, who's the head of the Palestinian Authority. And he makes this really vile and grotesque comparison where he basically goes oh you know my family's irish catholic i'm very familiar with the way that like those those icky kind of protestant british have historically treated the irish Catholics. so i'm very familiar with your plight how all those kind of like icky jews in israel treat you guys here here in, in quote unquote palestine really just vile noxious stuff um, you know, The Biden administration has gone above and beyond to try to fund the Palestinian Authority to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars in clear violation of the spirit, if not perhaps quite the exacting lawyerly letter of the Taylor Force Act. It's a very good argument that they, they are actually directly violating the statute, but a, at a bare minimum, they are clearly uh, violating the spirit of this 2018 bipartisan law the Taylor Force Act, which basically put a kibosh on U.S. subsidies to the Palestinian Authority until they stop um, he, he, with this pay for slay program, where they pay the families of of jihadists who who kill um, Israelis and Americans for that matter, because Taylor Force was an American. So then, finally, he goes to Saudi Arabia, and it seems to me that he didn't accomplish what he set out to do. In Saudi Arabia now, I, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. I fully understand exactly what he was, in, was, was trying to do, but it seems that the most obvious thing he was trying to do was get a firm commitment to boost oil, to boost oil, um, you know, production. Given obviously four decade high uh, gasoline prices, inflation, all of that that we just that we discussed on the show at Infinitum, he didn't get that. At best, he got like a very kind of tacit, limp, kind of flaccid, uh, you know, like say like, oh, you know, we'll put it on the agenda, we'll, we'll consider it. The broader thing, of course. Is this idea that the Saudis really ideally should be brought into the Abraham Accords, should be brought into this generational peace agreements that 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 uh, Donald Trump and Bibi Netanyahu oversaw, where Israel made formal peace with the UAE, Bahrain, and Morocco? The uh, the Saudis clearly signed off on that. There was no way that that um, Abu Dhabi and and Bahrain would have signed onto that without the Saudi's blessing. So the only question here is whether the Saudis can formally be brought into that. It does not seem to me like they have made any substantial progress on that front. The obvious reason for that is because the Biden administration continues to try to appease the Saudi's arch foe, the Iranian regime in these ridiculous negotiations in Vienna that are clearly going nowhere. So from my perspective, this trip did not go particularly well. Um, to to put it mildly, but I'm kind of just curious for your guys' thoughts, whether you agree with my take on
3: this. This trip was a disaster. It was embarrassing. Um, And it's exactly why you don't, first of all, it's why you don't have a senile president. You don't elect a senile president. You don't put him through the primary, enable him. And then, I mean, this is on Jill Biden, um, who encouraged this, the Biden family, who encouraged this. Um, and that might sound ridiculous and trivial, but in all sincerity, you know, this man is not, does not have the capacity to perform as a leader of the free world, let alone as a leader of um, our country. And to go on the international stage to beg Saudi Arabia for oil unsuccessfully and have them uh, leak. Things that are contrary to your story to the American public that makes us look like we just begged and were rebuked by a less powerful country Um, against the interests of our people, it is just utterly humiliating. Um, And it is a reason why uh, the Democratic Party that nominated Joe Biden, because none of the other candidates um, understood what their voters actually wanted, is just, it is a shame. Um, And it's, it's just, it was humiliating as an American, like partisanship aside, it was just humiliating as an American to watch the way that his senility um, was treated by other countries and they know they know how to do it now.
2: So <clears throat> I'll, I'll be really brief here. Uh, yeah, on both the optics and the substance, this was a joke and a disaster. The interesting thing was that this trip was portrayed as sort of a way to get out of Washington, D.C. and turn the page on the domestic disasters unfolding. Uh, And he walked into several foreign policy disasters from the perspective of America's national interest. Maybe the Biden people think this trip was a success. Uh, But first of all, obviously, um, I'd say kind of twofold. On the one hand, uh, this showed the way in which the Biden administration squandered what the trump administration had achieved of course joe biden said he wanted to make mbs and saudi arabia a pariah Uh, this shows you precisely how foolish and farcical that was Uh, leaving aside of course that joe biden has and his family have no problem doing business with all manner of authoritarian regimes around the world it was obviously not in america's national interest to go about chiding and chastising and attacking a Saudi Arabian regime that is critical as a bulwark against the Iranians, regardless of the fact that obviously we wouldn't want to live under a Saudi royal family decree ourselves. Um, So this was obviously a failure in that Saudi Arabia told him to go pound sand. And of course, that's how any rational leadership would act in response to an administration coming hat in hand after attacking MBS Uh, and then, basically begging for oil, of course, because we needlessly have constrained and curtailed our own supply and went from energy independence to dependence within a year and a half or less. Um, so obviously embarrassing there. But I do think it also shows the durability of what Trump achieved in the region, because of course, the administration tried to tout the fact that you know, Joe Biden flying from Israel to Saudi Arabia represented you know, a landmark achievement in terms of the normalization, to some extent, even if not formally. Between Saudi Arabia and Israel, of course, that's all thanks to the Trump administration's efforts. It has nothing to do with what the Biden administration has done, uh, and and he tried to pass off, you know, the fostering of relations between the Gulf Arab powers and Israel as well as being an achievement of the administration. But at the same, t- by the same token, of course, they're still trying to go down this road of an Iran nuclear deal 2.0, and still, to Josh's point, in the coddling of the Palestinian Arab leadership and trying to essentially undercut the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem with his visits. Uh, The fact that he can't really achieve anything lasting there, I think does show the durability of what transpired over the last four years. And thank God, that's hugely beneficial to America's national interest. But it doesn't mean this administration won't do everything it possibly can to reprise an ascendant Muslim brotherhood and Iranian axis in the region, because that was always the Obama-Biden and now the Biden administration's goal to make the strong course the Islamists, both Sunni and Shia in the Middle East and beyond.
0: Yeah, I mean, speaking of of Obama, yes, this reminds me of the Obama foreign policy in more ways than one. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm not like uh, Josh or, or Ben in terms of being a foreign policy expert, um, but from the top-level perspective, it's kind of the worst-of-all-world scenario. You can talk about realpolitik um, and making our foreign policy decisions purely on national interests. You can talk about the fact that America is great because it is good and we need to be um, you know, we need to make our foreign policy consonant with our domestic values. Uh, that would be something like Carter, right, uh, which was in his own way a disaster, but at least was trying to sort of align Americans foreign policy, America's foreign policy with um, domestic morality. You know, it seems like with the Obama administration and then now the Biden administration is the worst of both worlds, right? Um, it, it is this bizarre uh, thing where we are constantly forming foreign policy around um, essentially domestic morality, but only in the cases where it hurts the United States, right? We don't care at all about the many human rights violations of America's enemies. We only care um, about the human rights violations and and in cases where there are regimes that actually could work well with the United States on on some uh, national priority goal. So that seems completely backwards. Um, And just generally, it seems like our policy is, the reverse of Teddy Roosevelt. It's it's more like you know yell very loudly and condescendingly about human rights violations, but carry a very tiny twig, um, not not a not a big stick. Uh, and and that that truly is the, the worst of all worlds, right? Like I could imagine a consistent U.S. foreign policy that took either one of those tacks and had better results than this kind of a little bit from column A and a little bit of column B in the worst possible combination um, for the American people. So um, with that, I'm going to transition to my own topic here, and that is. Um, the University of Pennsylvania has uh, decided to slap all of its uh, female athletes in the face and nominate Leah Thomas as uh, female national um, woman of the year for the NCAA, right? So we have a, a man who has been nominated as the NCAA's woman of the year award uh, for the University of Pennsylvania. Um, important to note, this is obviously not just about swimming, so they literally could have chosen any other female athlete, um, actual woman athlete, for this award. Um, and it, it, obviously, this is this is not important in the large scheme of things. This particular award, um, but it does it does show once again that uh, functionally. In our elite institutions, and increasingly under our law, um, there is no distinction between male and female, between man and woman. Um, our definitions that we have been working with for, you know, millennia um, are, are are no longer the ones accepted by our elite institutions. Um, and I, I was just over um, this, this past weekend promoting uh, something that IWF and IWV do, which is this um, Women's Bill of Rights, uh, which does not add any like new rights <laughs> um, to, to all it does is define. It defines woman. it defines man for the purposes of federal or state law, depending on who would pick it up. And um, that's this shows again why this is so necessary uh, because there are multi-prong attacks on the definition of sex and um, it turns out that that really matters under the law. It turns out there are probably, Hundreds, if not thousands, of instances in uh, which women and men rely on every day for uh, that, that the law actually recognized the reality of biological sex. From you know TSA pat downs of the same sex to um, incarceration, where we just had um, an incident in New Jersey, where of course a <laughs> the way they said it is transgender woman uh, impregnates two other inmates. Yeah, women can't impregnate anything, right? You put a you put a biological man um, into a prison with women. And there were natural consequences from that. Um, so uh, from from the TSA in prisons to um, sports teams like this Leah Thomas incident, uh, sports teams in universities and K-12 locker rooms, um, there, there are literally, uh, like I said, hundreds of instances that some of which we don't even think about where the law recognizes the definition of sex. And this is just another indication that Defining that in the law proactively is incredibly necessary in the face of um, not only attempts like the Equality Act and the ERA as a constitutional amendment to erase those distinctions, uh, but also completely bureaucratic attempts, right? Administrative attempts, which is what this t- these Title IX regulations from the Biden administration do—the same thing. Um, so it's really important that we proactively define uh, define sex in the law, both on the, the state and federal level, um, and potentially some, some conflicts with with uh, these these uh, overreaching bureaucrats, uh, and and basically that that would affect something like UPenn that that takes a lot of of state money. Um, so with that, I'll throw it out. I guess the questions for, for the group would be, you know, how, how do we go about proactively dealing with this? Um, obviously, I think all four of us and probably I hope everyone listening to this podcast understands that uh, the distinction between male and female is one of the most foundational in civilization and that um, this this sort of these sort of lies in our culture can endure. So so what what should we how should we go about um and I guess, how, how should we go about this fight? And also, um, whether you think this fight should be sort of central or periphery, because when we're talking about MBS, and we're talking about America's foreign policy, and, and all of that, I mean, th- these things can seem a little, a little trivial. But my argument is, I, I, I really don't think they are trivial. So I'll, I'll toss yep. it up to everyone else.
3: We know how non-trivial they are by the fact that our, our hostile foreign powers are trying to undercut us by exploiting these absurd, decadent divisions. Um, we know that that's what they do on social media. We know, for instance, that Russia saw this as a huge vulnerability when they were, um, you know, implementing their social media campaign to divide Americans um, in 2016. And, you know, we saw this. So it's absolutely, it's. I mean, it's, it's absolutely a central, question it's it's as important as any other question um it's not just an abstract discussion about the fringes of the left um just precisely because and as this example you highlight shows this is a a major uh i mean this is a a storied prestigious major institution um giving an award that belongs to an actual woman to a man and that shows exactly how powerful this is and exactly why it is no longer this abstract sort of conversation about the fringe left and it never should have been treated as an abstract conversation about the fringe left but um, it's completely essential and I think to your question. Um, you know, we should be proactive about it. I love the Bill of Rights idea. Um, And, you know, you think that's kind of silly, because Title IX itself said on the basis of sex, and, you know, there was never this idea that we would have to define sex, even if you go back to how Phyllis Schlafly was talking about um, the Equal Rights Amendment, everybody understood that there were sexual differences. Um, And, and so I think, you know, Yes, be proactive, talk about what these differences are and why they matter. There are some that are small that are very obvious, you know, things like breastfeeding. Um, Talk about that. Talk about the value in that. It's sort of sad that we have to, but maybe also an opportunity. On the other hand, um, the left is doing a a huge uh, part of our job for us just by doing things exactly like this that offend the sensibilities of just about everybody except for 10% of the country. Um, So they're doing a bang up job.
1: Can I ask a question out of curiosity? And then I'll do my segment. Have any of the three, have any of, the three of you seen Matt Walsh's What is a Woman documentary? Yes. OK. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just watched it for this past weekend for the first time. Um, I, I used to work at the Daily Wire, of, of course. I used to edit Matt's column most days. I'm, I'm, I love Matt. I think he's not just like a, amazingly good at what he does, but like a really like like just genuinely like fun person to hang out with. His, his documentary was excellent. I, I would really recommend it to the to the listeners and, and the viewers of this program. And what I think is so effective about uh, the Walsh, What is doc, What is a Woman Documentary? Is there's just a series of these, these conversations and these interviews where he sits down with these, you know, purportedly well-credentialed people, whether they're surgeons who are involved in chemical castration, whether they're pediatricians assigning like puberty blocking drugs, whether they're gender LGBT studies, whatever professors deep in the bowels of the American Academy. And he just exposes their absolute lunacy, like, like how completely. Completely morally and logically insane. These people are like they literally are are are. Like, they- the documentary shows how they are incapable of defining what is a woman without resorting to what Walsh correctly points out is circular logic. Like, a woman, according apparently to the avant garde in, in gender and women's studies, is someone who self identifies as a woman. To which the obvious response is anyone who ever, like, took, you know, trained for the LSAT or took formal logic is, well, that's circular reasoning. That is, that, that is by, like, what are you identifying as? And by the end of this hour and a half documentary, Matt Walsh has not gotten. A, 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 an answer to this very obvious question. So I think uh, the reason I'm kind of focusing uh, you know uh, my remarks here on the, on this Walsh documentary is because I think that tactic whether it comes from documentary filmmakers, whether it comes from Project Veritas, whether it comes from kind of orientation like that, is the way that we ultimately, I think, kind of win this fight, or, or even when it comes to kind of like that exchange we talked about, you know, in the last episode between Josh Hawley and that back crap plays crazy Cal Berkeley law professor, is we just have to shine a spotlight, I think, on how removed from reality, how removed from kind of the basic sensibilities of the median American these people are. Because when you cannot define what a woman is beyond saying someone who self-identifies as a woman... I mean, I have to think the median American looks at that and says, this is crazy. I know what a woman is. It is someone who has XYZ physical characteristics, period, full stop, end of story. So, um, you know, know, look, what's happening here at UPenn is like, it it is egregious. Uh, Walsh does a whole segment on the UPenn Leah Thomas thing in the documentary. They kind of have someone. Uh, he interviews a swimmer on the team. They have to kind of black out the swimmer's face because she's she's like a too afraid of reprisal to kind of have her face there, which says it all. This is like this is a mafia. It is like an it is an, it is an oppressive cultural rainbow flag transgender jihad. And the way that we ultimately kind of win this fight against the cultural jihadis is just to shine a very bright spotlight on their lunacy. I think.
2: Yeah, I think that. Uh- Demonstrating in crystal clear fashion the ridiculousness and the absurdity of this is definitely part of the right approach. Um, this is, I think, this is why libs of TikTok had to be doxed and attacked precisely because all libs of TikTok did was hold up a mirror to the fact that this is what the most rabid and radical leftists believe. And while they may be fringe, their influence goes far beyond their number, which is the problem when you have all of our institutions controlled by those who are at least adjacent to these individuals as well represented in our institutions of higher learning that are then going to populate the bureaucracy and our cultural centers of influence and our corporations and beyond, which makes it so that the craziest ideas end up looking far more representative than they actually are in our society. But I think at core, beyond the fact that the radical gender ideology is essentially anti-civilizational because it goes against nature quite literally, uh, as demonstrated, of course, as we saw, you know, first with Ketanji Brown Jackson not being able to or not not being willing to define what a woman is. And then in this testimony with Senator Hawley and the professor unable to say that only women can get pregnant. Uh, This is the war on women, first of all, because it is denying the uniqueness of women, which should be celebrated and that the left was supposed to be about protecting. But I think at core, beyond the civilizational aspects of this, it's about trying to make people submit to a lie, to reject what they know to be true from the time we're small children. And I think that is ultimately their agenda, which demands total control, uh, which requires total control, requires us to acquiesce to and accept and submit to and keep our mouths shut about lies that we know to be lies. And so it's important to speak truth and to confront this with truth and courage going forward, because submitting to a lie means you can submit to their entire agenda. And we can't have that in this country. We're not a free country if
3: we do. So couldn't could, uh, oh Emily go ahead? No, I was going to transition. Oh, that's what I was going to do. I was going to kick it over to you. Um, I was no just pun say intended.
0: That uh, that Ben I think is completely right about how if you can you can uh, if you can force people to uh, watch Leo Thomas get a female athlete award and say nothing uh you, you really you you really can force people to say and think anything. But with that we will kick it over to Emily. She's going to talk about um, some Starbucks closing, which. Uh, for, and and Starbucks giving some very interesting reasons for why that's happening.
3: Well, speaking of our rotting and decadent institutions, um, one of America's biggest companies, um, something that is in everyone's neighborhood at least once, if not much more than that, Starbucks, um, is walking back its policies. And Howard Schultz, who returned to lead the company company in April, uh, founder of Starbucks, after flirting with a presidential run, uh, an an ill-fated presidential run is back and he's talking about how he believes that America's cities are failing um, to address the homelessness crisis, to address the mental health crisis. And this is why he says Starbucks is closing some stores in major American cities and big spots in major American cities. So to be clear here, this is saying, that our American cities cannot sustain one of our biggest American coffee franchises because crime and mental illness and homelessness is out of control. Now, there's another layer to the story, which is that Howard Schultz has also said that Starbucks is going to, quote, need to rethink its bathroom policy, which you'll remember was implemented in the face of a public relations crisis after somebody said that they were treated, they received racist treatment at a Starbucks. So then Starbucks said, all right, anybody can open, can use our bathrooms. They don't just need to be reserved for customers. You don't have to pay, which obviously when you open up the restrooms to non-paying customers, you have paying customers, you have your staff sitting around, um, you know, often dangerous crises. I actually myself got locked into a Starbucks the White House. Um, This was in the summer of 2020. I was out covering the protests at the Ellen Plaza and um, a woman started throwing stuff at staff, screaming at them, berating them. And that is not a one-off incident. incident. In fact, we've heard it cited in the reasons that Starbucks workers want to unionize. They told Jacobin that they are forced to double as, quote, untrained social workers. And so it's sort of a, a tragic reflection on the systemic failure of American society, the most powerful country in the world, the richest country in the world to deal with um, crime, to deal with mental illness, to deal with homelessness in a sensible, logical, just way that we can't even sustain these franchise locations in what were the sort of temples or the the avatars of American greatness, our cities. Um, We can't even sustain Starbucks franchises. And then Howard Schultz Um, And a a company that was trying to posture as pro uh, BLM in a million different ways, um, you know, realizing that this had a a negative effect, um, not just on their sort of bottom line, but on, you know, in general. And so it's just, it's amusing and sad to watch them try to deflect blame and and, uh, act as though they're complete decadent uh, capitalist, leftist, weird amalgam ideology had nothing to do with it. Um, But at the same time, you know, it's just it's a really sad statement, I think, on our city. So with that, I'll I'll toss it to the group.
0: Yeah, um, I'll jump in here. Obviously, um, Union Station in D.C. is one of the locations that Starbucks had to close. Um, for for these reasons, and anyone who's been to to Union Station in DC recently knows why. Um, and and it's not just Starbucks, right? It's it's uh, Walgreens, CVS, these kinds of uh, businesses are finding it impossible to operate in the face of rising, as Emily says, um, you know, <laughs> essentially like, social required social work, um, rising homelessness, dealing with people who are absolutely um, either so high that they're disconnected with reality or um, um, just have very, very serious, uh, mental illness problems. Um, this, this is a, a complete failure. Um, and, and it's, it's observably worse because of the policies, um, that are allegedly quote unquote compassionate. And and that really drives me crazy. I think Michael Schellenberger does a really good job of laying this out in his book, San Francisco. Um, you know, the the very organizations, there are a lot of people actually getting quite rich off of homelessness, because there's a ton of money, um, and every single one of those cities going towards that problem. It's just that that money is completely uh, ill spent. And it is uh, given to the priorities of essentially woke organizations that propose to speak on behalf of the homeless. Um, And and in reality, what the, the policies boil down to is, permitting people to uh, live in open-air drug dens um and and in tent cities in in our across the country um in our urban areas and of course once again it's bears saying i you know i i almost hate to say it because it matters whether it impacts the the poorest among us or not, it's a, it's a, um, um, but nevertheless, of course, the people who suffer the most from us are people who cannot remove themselves from it. And what you really have, especially in California, but is really spreading into cities like DC, but a lot of these locations for Starbucks, they're closing in San Francisco, LA, Seattle, Portland, right? Um, and it, it really, I guess it bears mentioning that uh, we are really kind of transforming ourselves into a sort of Eloy and Morlock situation in, in a lot of these cities. So for example, in Los Angeles, uh, if you live in downtown, they have a ton of very nice luxury buildings and those luxury buildings are adding something called amenity decks. Um, and, and basically the idea is that you can have in your building, the equivalent of a CVS where you can pick up any kind of toiletries or, or any little groceries that you need. Um, they have oftentimes a bar floor where you can socialize and bring people, um, and they have a garage. So you literally never have to walk the streets of Los Angeles when you're living in one of these luxury buildings who just go straight down to your car garage. You leave, and you never actually have to interact with, with the, the sort of Morlocks running um, running rampant on the streets uh, uh, in downtown Los Angeles. That's not a good model for society. That That's almost, it's like going to um, sort of a, a Latin American model, where the very wealthy essentially compound themselves off um, from the the larger problems of, of um, the society and street crime and homelessness. So uh, that that's not that's not a solution going forward, especially for a republic uh, that, that purports to to uphold the principle that all men are created equal. Not that uh, that we should have two vastly different societies where uh, the rich just completely exit themselves. Um, and, and bar, bar themselves off from the, the crime uh, crime and homelessness homelessness that uh, affects everybody else. But uh, I'll get to to Josh and Ben.
1: yeah, look, i, I I'll be really quick because we're running short on time on time, on time to set man. I'll just say like I, I think what's happening in America's cities, I'll just reiterate a point that we made in a previous podcast is, is and should be like a, a a stump speech, very frequent talking point made by Republicans running for office this fall. Um, there aren't that many Republican uh, congressional districts in actual urban areas. I, I actually live in one. A, a Congresswoman Salazar, who's not a particularly good Republican to put it mildly, just kind of a rhino if there ever were a rhino. But I but she but but I actually live in one. But you know, even if there aren't that many Republican-held truly urban congressional districts across the country, there are a lot of suburban. In congressional ditches with with, you know the the much value who kind of suburban mom swing boat who kind of frequently kind of go into the cities or at least want to see their flagship cities be safe and you know where starbucks can basically go and not be you know hounded by homeless people right so this really should be a very popular thing for republicans to hit on the stump this fall but i'll transition to ben just for the sake of time here
2: well, I didn't have Howard Schultz getting mugged by reality on the bingo card this year, but <laughs> I, I think this is a demonstration of where we are when Chesa Boudin gets recalled, uh, when Alvin Bragg is under fire in New York. Uh, it's It shows that there are limits, even to the unreasonable radical progressives, when their policies run up with reality. And the reality is that the living standards for everyone Degraded. It's bad for both the insane people running wild on the streets, as well as the law abiding citizens that have to deal with the consequences of it. So uh, I welcome the backlash to the progressives. uh, But I do see that sort of a tale of two societies dystopic picture that Inez is painting, uh, continuing to accelerate uh, this trend of essentially our ruling elites walling themselves off from everyone else. This is uh, you know, it's not exactly analogous, but the walling off of Capitol Hill after January 6th for months on end, I really think was about separating the ruling class from the ruled and presenting an illustration of that, not because the ruled are really afraid, uh, the ruling class is really afraid of the people they deign to rule, uh, but because they wanted to send that message that they are above everyone else. They ought to be separate and apart from everyone else in society. And so I do think, you know, we are moving towards a model of moats around or you know the modern equivalent of moats around our modern castles who wants to live in that society at the end of the day is a question that ought to be put to all of these purported leaders who wants to live in a society where it's the rabble and then the elites completely separate and apart from each other a free republic can't exist for a long time like that
0: yeah, and with that, I think we'll, we'll go around and, and give our final thoughts. I'll, I'll I'll kick it off here just to continue um, the topic of you know Leo Leah Thomas and, and transgenderism and the inability of our ruling class, as Ben says, to recognize sex among all the other things that they've separated themselves from the from the rest of the American people. On, um, I, I want to make one point that I think does not get made enough, um, and Matt Walsh uh, Josh is one of the few people who actually does make it. Um, we now have a moment where there's a very, very strong majority of people who recognize that biological sex exists and that trans- transgenderism has gone way, way too far. Uh, but I do think it's important just to take a step back and note that the, it is ideologically um, it, it's, it, it follows from the feminist premises that society has accepted, long since accepted. Right? Um, there isn't a bright biological line between the, the the biological differences that constitute, you know, more upper body strength and and different genitals, um, than the the biological differences, for example, in in male and female brains. Um, you can t- do a scan of a six month fetus um, in in utero and with 94% accuracy, look at that brain scan and tell whether that is a male or female fetus, right? These, these uh, differences, it's biological differences. They start in the womb and they only get that bigger with time. Um, and and they're very real. And once you don't, you refuse to acknowledge as, as I, I will say, this is something that Americans as a whole, most of the time, we are criticizing the ruling class with, for, for very good reason. And I still think but the American, the average American is much more salutary, like admirably salutary compared to, to the ruling class. But on this, um, we've long since accepted the premise that basically these differences between men and women ought not to matter very much. They ought not to matter for your you know, career choices. They ought not matter um, for the way that you build your relationships or the way that we structure society. Those are feminist premises that most of our society has accepted. And there isn't like a bright line stop between that and transgenderism. There is a rebellion for the TERFs, right? There are um, radical feminists and we work with them for this Women's Bill of Rights. Um, and we're on the same team on this, on this issue, but nevertheless, I think it's worth pointing out that actually transgenderism does and the interchangeability of men and women follows um from a society that refuses to recognize the distinctions between men and women in a deeper sense not just in terms of our bits um and that that's my final thought but i'll I'll kick it out to you all for for final thoughts
1: so i want to talk about foreign policy again so i want to go back to to my sentiment, but actually kind of just broaden it a little bit here so from my perspective i'm pretty sure i've written this uh, or i've said it before from from my perspective the trump administration's if you you look at all of its various accomplishments it was probably disproportionately actually successful in the sphere of foreign policy on domestic level there were any number of successes too but to be fully candid here if you look at their two main pieces of legislation that passed kind of a mealy-mouthed tax cut kind of like a wall street journal kind of like supply side kind of tax cut and then like a massive jailbreak the first step back that i personally opposed But really, in the the foreign policy space, the Trump administration made some huge, huge accomplishments. Obviously, Trump was the first president since since Richard Nixon to totally just try to reset America's relationship with China and all that that entailed from a national security perspective, diplomatic perspective, economic perspective, obviously, with tariffs. I think if he had gone a second term, he would have probably taken that kind of COVID centric momentum to really try to kind of reassure, um you know, manufacturing and some key supply chains, but obviously he was deprived of that second term. And then obviously to go back to my segment here of the Middle East, you, you know, it is just remarkable still to me, uh, we're approaching the two year anniversary of the Abraham Accords, which was, um, uh, you know, the White House Ceremony was September of 2020, less than two months before the 2020 presidential election. It is really remarkable to me still that no one received the Nobel Peace Prize for the first, you know, systemic, systematic peace accords in the Middle East in 25 years. What you know, and they and they got four countries in the span of like three months. You know, the Sudanese agreement is is a little, you know, more legally murky, but at a bare minimum, you still had UAE, Bahrain, and and Morocco. It was really just incredible stuff. So I say that because. When Biden came into office in January 2021, really all he had to do with respect to China, with respect to the Middle East, really also with respect to Russia, by the way. You know, despite all the hysteria, obviously, Trump took a, a actually a fairly hawkish line on Russia. He had this remarkable speech in Warsaw in the, in the summer of 2017 in kind of Reaganite fashion where he looked eastward. And, you know, he, he, he was actually quite on, on the policy when it came to things like missile defense, shoring up our Central Eastern European allies. He was actually quite hawkish on Russia. So all, all that's to say, whether it's Russia, China, Middle East, ISIS, Iran, whatever, All Biden had to do was get in there in January 2021 and not F it up. And, you know, basically everywhere you look, he has managed to do exactly that. You know, we've obviously we saw what happened with with, with the way that he handled the Afghanistan withdrawal. Obviously, Russia and Ukraine are at war. China has never been more eager to make kind of hegemonic gains in the East and South China Seas. You know, and with respect to the Middle East, now with Saudi Arabia, kind of the linchpin of kind of, um, you know, American Middle East policy, or at least outreach to the Arab world is kind of falling under the influence of, of Beijing and the Belt and Road Initiative. And, you know, with respect to these Israeli-Palestinian issue in particular here, the remarkable story of what Trump and Netanyahu accomplished um, culminating in the Abraham Accords was, from my perspective, to once and for all show the folly of the inside-out approach, the so-called inside-out approach to Israeli-Arab reconciliation more broadly whereby is Israel and Palestine, you know, Palestinians had to make peace and then Israel would make peace. No, the Trump administration flipped that on its on its paradigm. They show that you bolster Israel and by bolstering Israel, then you've got the Emiratis, Bahrainis to come in there. And then once the Palestinians realize the Arab world has shifted on them, then, then they will kind of come to the negotiating table and beg for scraps once they realize that they're Claims have been, you know, abandoned by large swaths of the Arab world. So Biden has totally messed that up. He he obviously has messed up all these other issues here. So I think it's just worth emphasizing how, you know, just how we know how bad Joe Biden is on domestic policy. We all see the inflation, the gas pump prices, the economy, the immigration at the border, all that stuff. But he has really, really, really messed up the Trump administration's terrific, terrific foreign policy accomplishments as well.
3: Go yeah, ahead, just to, I,
2: I yeah. feel like you're on foreign policy. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll transition off of it. But briefly, um, just to Josh's point, I've long argued that national security and foreign policy uh, were where the seminal achievements of the Trump administration lay, uh, not to at all talk down the economic growth and myriad benefits in manufacturing and beyond uh, that transpired during that administration. But I think it's worth noting that precisely because Trump had these myriad achievements from uh, countering comprehensively communist China to uh, resetting the Middle East and building a a bulwark against, again, the kind of Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Shia, Khomeinist axis, this is precisely why the national security, intelligence, foreign policy, law enforcement apparatus sprung at Trump and where all of the assaults came from were precisely in the areas where Trump upset the apple cart uh, because he challenged their power, privilege and prerogatives in these areas, actually to the benefit of America's national interest broadly and consistent with what the American people wanted within these realms. And that is why I believe I've long held that the very first assaults on the personnel of the Trump administration were Michael Flynn, National Security Advisor precisely because it was a non-confirmable position or a position that did not require confirmation. And he would have disproportionate sway over the president and potentially further threaten the establishment kind of globalist, progressive, internationalist agenda. So I I think that point is worth making. The president's policies were uh, amazing achievements, incredible, unprecedented achievements in many respects. They happened in spite of the fact that there was the massive onslaught but there's a reason the massive onslaught came from where it did, which were a- a- effectively branches of government unto themselves within the administrative state, the deep state within the administrative state. Um, just really briefly, I also wanted to say, you know, as was talking about kind of uh, the fact that the foreign policy is backwards essentially from the perspective of America's national interest. And I think when you look at kind of the progressive agenda writ large, which even though progressives would say, Joe Biden hasn't gone far enough, nevertheless like what is the progressive agenda that's being put forth it would say that hurting the us in terms of our national strength and projection of power and using our putting our resources to their highest and best use uh, is, would actually be against our national interest. In other words, hurting America and helping our adversaries is the moral national interest. Uh, it would elevate criminals over the law-abiding, the progressive agenda. It would privilege illegal aliens over law-abiding citizens and, of course, punish the border states that reject that policy. And you would invert the sexes. So I think turning society upside down is the progressive agenda. And progressives ought to be asked at every single turn why do you think your policies make America more peaceful and prosperous, when in reality, they're punishing Americans and we see it on our streets every single day? Question ought to be asked and I think it ought to be framed in that way.
3: And my final thought kind of goes with that, which is we are unable to function uh, as a society increasingly on very basic terms. Um, and that is extremely worth thinking about because, uh, and by the way, to this question of that, that Annette has raised about how central, I think we all have the same answer to this. The question of you know gender identity and versus sex is you know is it on par with these national security conversations? Of course, because this decadence has completely eroded our ability to function um, in cities and to function in general. Right, like there are communities being torn apart over who's allowed to run in track meets. Um, we can't sustain coffee shops, one of our most successful American companies, in cities. Uh, because we have just so turned logic on its head um, in the interest of a sort of decadent postmodern ideology, because we're we no longer sort of tethered to something um, truer, something good, something true, good and beautiful, right? Like we're no longer tethered to a, a foundation of rock, um, we're just on these sort of shifting sands of postmodernity. And that means that increasingly, the this, this Starbucks example, I mean, obviously, I think we all believe it's possible this is a turning point. Um, and it feels like that in some respects. But if it's not, um, what we're just going to see is more and more the social fabric tearing. Um, in in ways that are just as tragic as this example of, you know, working class Starbucks employees having to act as untrained social workers in the face of people suffering from fentanyl crisis, the fentanyl crisis, um, addiction, who have not received treatment, who have been alienated from their communities attacking them in coffee shops um, to the point where an American company like Starbucks can't even function in you know certain areas of our cities. It's um, an ongoing tragedy, and hopefully we're at a turning point, but I think we're at least going to see more of this in the near future.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, a true if depressing note to, to finish this episode on. On behalf of Ben, Emily, and Josh, thanks for tuning in. I'm Inez Stepman. I'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.